This is The Guardian. Today, a suitcase full of cash and top EU officials arrested. We hear about the scandal that's rocking the European Parliament. Police in Belgium have arrested five people, including a European Parliament vice president. It's part of a corruption investigation into alleged influence peddling by an unspecified Gulf state. Possible corruption at the centre of Europe. It's an astonishing investigation. Police searching through homes and offices in Brussels. Authorities seizing hundreds of thousands of euros in cash. Some even found in a suitcase in a hotel room. What you're hearing might sound like the opening to a crime thriller, but it's not. This is a tale of powerful politicians and parliamentary aides who make decisions that affect the whole of the European Union and who've allegedly accepted more than one million euros in bribes. It's said that Qatar, via Morocco, have been buying influence and favour in Brussels. The arrest of Eva Kaili as senior vice president of the European Parliament on suspicion of accepting money in exchange for giving Qatar good publicity has raised questions about just how much influence the Gulf state may wield on the continent. Those questions about undue influence, about transparency and about the European Parliament's ability to police itself and its members haven't yet been fully answered. Journalists have tried... Here's the EU chief, Ursula von der Leyen, of the separate European Commission, facing them off. There will be several other press conferences. I'm sorry, Oliver. I'm sorry, Oliver, this is not the way to organise a press conference here. I'm really sorry. The Parliament's president, Roberta Metzola, says that this could just be the start. I cannot predict where this will go, uh, but what I can say, I fear, and this is in a general point of view, um, after uh, our initial findings, is that the story will not stop here. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus the corruption scandal that swept right through the centre of EU politics. Jennifer Rankin, you're the Brussels correspondent for The Guardian. First things first, this story feels like it's been lifted straight out of the pages of a crime novel. How did it first come to light? It all began... On Friday the the 9th of December, uh, early in the morning, with police standing outside the apartment uh, of of an MEP uh, close to the European Parliament. And they had been investigating, we found out later, many months, uh, a huge corruption scandal at the European Parliament. They believed that a Gulf state, which we later found out was Qatar, was trying to basically by votes in the European Parliament to influence decision makers. And they thought that scandal reached right into the European Parliament, including one of the one of the institution's 14 vice presidents. 
And the suggestion to begin with was that it was around um, assistance in the European Parliament. But then late on Friday night, we understood that Ava Kiley, this vice president in the European Parliament, was involved. Essentially, they're looking into corruption. They found €600,000 in cash and other gifts as part of these raids. So going back to Friday morning, police gathered outside the home of, uh, of the flat of an MEP, that's a, a Greek MEP, Eva Kaili. Uh, she lived there with her partner, Francesco Giorgio. He's an Italian who also worked at the parliament. The police arrested both of them over the course of the morning and that raid kicked off a series uh, of searches on, on other homes across Brussels. And within a few days, Police said they had raided 20 properties, including as well offices in the European Parliament itself. They had seized cash, they had seized computers, laptops, phones, and altogether they said they had got nearly 1.5 million euros in cash, cash that they found stuffed in luxury travel bags and, and backpacks. The person who's at the centre of this is a Greek MEP, a member of the European Parliament called Eva Kaili. What can you tell us about her? She was first elected to to the European Parliament in 2014. She'd been in politics for a long time. Uh, she was she had a career in in Greece as a TV news anchor, but was very interested in politics from a young age and joined the Greek Socialist Party PASOK. Uh, where she seemed to have quite a rapid rise through the ranks and made it to the European Parliament. She had a specific responsibility for for Middle Eastern affairs and, and would often be travelling to countries in the Middle East and, and the Gulf states. Was she very high profile then? I think if you followed... Uh, Middle Eastern issues, if you followed tech, you would have come across her. She didn't have a super high profile uh, in Brussels, um, but she was well known in Greece. Eva Kaili was very interested in in the Middle East, but particularly in Qatar. And she soon gained a reputation as someone who was very interested in Qatar and in quite an unusual way. In fact, one MEP I spoke to said she was even nicknamed the the spokesperson of the Qatar lobby. And and people people commented on the fact that she took a very pro-Qatar position. And that was cemented when she stood up in the European Parliament shortly before the World Cup began, when MEPs were about to vote on a resolution uh, condemning the deaths of thousands of migrant workers in constructing stadiums, in constructing infrastructure for the World Cup. They committed to a vision by choice and they opened to the world. Still some here are calling to discriminate them. They bully them and they accuse everyone that talks to them or engages of corruption. But still they take their gas. Still they have their companies profiting billions there. How did they react? Was it felt that that was in bad taste. There was surprise, but then I think there you do find MEPs who take a, a position sometimes that is rather close to to a particular government. She, so she she's not unusual. I can think of examples of others who tend to take a a, a line that might be very close to the the position of a particular government, uh, even an authoritarian government. And this case really highlights wider issues in the parliament about the role of foreign governments and how the parliament has opened its door to allow itself to be influenced. So Jennifer, to be clear, who's been charged in connection with these allegations so far? 
So there are four people who have been charged. Ava Kaili, the, the Greek MEP, her partner, Francesco Giorgi, he was an assistant in the European Parliament. Um, a third person who has been charged is a former Italian MEP, Pier Antonio Panzeri. He played a leading role in a form of subcommittee on, on human rights and was the founder of an NGO called Fight Impunity, or at least an organisation that called itself an NGO. And the fourth person who we understand has been charged is a, a campaigner, a lobbyist who also worked for an NGO, Nicolo Figia Talamanca. Three of them remain in, in custody and a fourth has been released with an electronic tag. Ava Kylie is still waiting to find out whether she will be released on bail or not. Well, it's like it could be written in a book, an international press scrum waiting outside a room where the woman that was once the poster girl of youth and dynamism in the European Parliament is facing charges of corruption alongside three Italian men. Now, this case has been extremely opaque. We do not know very much about what is happening in this room behind me. My understanding is that they are being read the charges against them, that the, de the defence and the prosecution are putting their cases forward and the judge in, in the courtroom behind me is deciding whether they are fit to stand trial. Jennifer, a lot of people in the UK, when they think of the European Parliament, will probably think of Nigel Farage um, causing scenes in the chamber there. But they may not have a, you know, a full understanding of what that Parliament actually does. Can you just remind us of what its role is and, and how powerful it is. It is, a, it is the, Europe, the European Union's only directly elected institution and that's a fact that it takes great pride in. Uh, it's, it elects uh, 705 MEPs from 27 member states and it plays a powerful role in making EU legislation. So along with uh, European ministers... Uh, it helps to co-write legislation on all sorts of topics from environment to tech regulation. It's gained in powers over the last 20 years and it's it's also seeks to have a, a foreign policy voice as well. So although the European Parliament does, doesn't have any competence on foreign policy, it likes to adopt lots of resolutions and take foreign policy positions. How much influence then can individual MEPs have I think individual MEPs can be hugely influential because if you're in charge of a particular piece of legislation, then you can you can be very influential in drafting amendments, in, in rewriting that legislation, in and if you're canny, in steering through amendments that that change the, the direction of the original proposal. Um, but it does allow someone who's dedicated and serious to have a, an influential role in, in a certain policy area. And on the flip side of that, somebody who was open to being bribed could potentially also have influence on on behalf of a private company, say, or a foreign government. As the, the checks and balances are that, or rather the, the checks on an, on an individual are you've got to persuade uh, colleagues to go along with you. Uh, but, it, but the European Parliament does allow an awful lot of freedom to MEPs, and there aren't uh, there aren't many constraints on their on their behaviour, on how they run their offices, on different sort of policy issues and people they choose to support. Uh, and and this scandal has, has raised questions about whether there should be uh, tighter rules on conduct, tighter rules on expenses, and 
tighter rules on on these unofficial groups that they can join and potentially have contacts with foreign governments. So we've got more than a million euros stacked in suitcases found in these luxurious residences across Brussels. What do we know so far about where that money might have come from? Investigators uh, believe the the money was was printed in Belgium and they think that's significant and they hope that will allow them to trace the the, the source of the money, to trace uh, the banks that it came from and ultimately the bank accounts. Um, We understand unofficially that they believe Qatar is the state that has been making these payments also also gifts as well to, to MEPs to, and, and not only to MEPs but to, to to politically connected people to try and influence them to exert pressure on the on the parliament in a certain direction. Qatar, we should say, has denied any wrongdoing whatsoever. Investigators had already suspected a Gulf state of buying influence in parliament with cash and gifts. Qatar denies it's involved and any wrongdoing. And now police have arrested several people who are now charged with participation in a criminal organisation, money laundering and corruption. If those unofficial briefings are correct, and this money has come from Qatar as bribes, what motive would officials in Qatar have to do that? What would they actually be looking to achieve? Well, the, the timing is interesting that uh, that this investigation has reached a conclusion just as the, the World Cup is going on. And Qatar, no doubt, want to, to sh- want to tell the world that uh, a different story about the World Cup. They don't want people to be concentrating on the deaths of migrant workers, on the injuries to migrant workers who were building the stadiums and, and building those hotels for the World Cup. So there's there's an interest there in getting out an alternative message rather rather than the, the, the very bleak picture that we've heard over over several years of reporting about what the situation is in Qatar for, for migrant workers. And there were talks about a visa scheme for Qataris and uh, an EU-Qatar aviation deal. What's happened to those negotiations now in light of this scandal coming out? Since this scandal broke, any file affecting Qatar has been suspended, although the the aviation deal, which would allow Qatari airlines greater rights to fly in into in European skies and, and vice versa, that's that's pretty much a done deal. It just now needs to be ratified by by governments, but it's al- al- actually already in force. The uh, the visa liberalisation deal is another question that was due to put, be put to a vote uh, recently, but as soon as the scandal broke, that uh, that question was shelved, and now it's uncertain what's going to happen to that file. How important is it for the EU to have a good relationship with Qatar? It's an interesting question at the moment because the EU has been definitely trying to improve relations with all the Gulf states since the war in Ukraine. And that's because there's, the EU is in a real fix with, with energy. Uh, Russia has drastically reduced the amount of gas it's, it's sending to Europe. And the EU is scrambling around to get other supplies, whether that's from uh, traditional allies such as the United States or, or other countries in the Middle East, such as Qatar. 
Last year, Qatar's exports to the EU amounted to almost 7 billion euros. The vast majority of that, unsurprisingly, was gas. Going the other way, the EU sold goods worth around 8.5 billion euros to Qatar. The main exports there were machines, turbines and electronic equipment. People are also pointing to the fact that, you know, recent, recent decisions by the EU to adopt a, a new cooperation agreement with the Gulf states uh, are ignoring human rights problems, are just uh, skating over, you know, really serious concerns about the, the, the political repression in a number of these countries. Um, but, but nonetheless, that's the direction that the EU has been moving in since the war in Ukraine. Do we know whether any MEPs have admitted being approached by Qatari officials? What we know from talking to MEPs in the last week, uh, and several have told me, is that they were they have been offered World Cup tickets, they've been offered free trips to Qatar. Uh, so nobody has said they've been offered a big wad of, of cash. Uh, but nonetheless, we, we know that Qatar was on a charm offensive to try and woo MEPs. Um, and there are, there's nothing in the rules that says an MEP can't accept a, a trip funded by a foreign government or a free ticket uh, to go and watch a, a World Cup game. So it's a, it's a grey area and I think it's an area that now the European Parliament will look to tighten up in the wake of this scandal. This was an investigation led by the Belgian police who carried out the raids the week before last. It's been pretty exposing for the European Parliament, you know, leading to criticism that they've failed to identify this alleged corruption and bribery internally. What are you hearing about that? And and what does all this reveal, do you think, about the way the Parliament polices itself? It's such an important question, I think. Many people have pointed out that it took an external police investigation to uncover this massive scandal and that none of the European Parliament's own processes and systems remotely detected this and people were in a state of shock. So I think it raises a lot of questions about the European Parliament's own procedures. And and very broadly, this is an institution with very opaque systems of government, of governance, with with which allows a lot of freedom for its members. That ultimately means the rules on expenses, for example, on accepting foreign trips are are rather lax. So, for example, this is a parliament where you don't need to show receipts about funding your office in your in your constituency. It's a parliament where you're allowed to have a second job or even a third job. When scandals have come to light in the past, often... People don't really get punished. There isn't, although they, they can be deprived of um, rights to sit in the parliament or that rarely happens. So there's a sense that really, you know, MEPs can often get away with, uh, with bad behaviour. Why has it been set up that way? I think because the MEPs themselves write the rules and there isn't any uh, pressure for them to reform. Of course, you do find MEPs uh, who, who, were, who for a long time have been calling for greater transparency, who've been leading lonely and dogged campaigns, for example, for the European Parliament to provide, for MEPs to provide receipts uh, about the fu- how they fund their offices. And yet time and time again, when these kind of questions come to the vote, you, you can never get a majority of MEPs in favour of of these reforms. 
So what's the president of the European Parliament had to say about this? The president of the European Parliament, this is Roberta Metzler uh, from Malta, she has said the very dramatically that the parliament is under attack, European democracy is under attack. And in her initial statement uh, on this scandal, she very much cast it uh, as foreign governments uh, attacking the integrity of the European Parliament, and she put less stress on individuals. These malign actors linked to autocratic third countries have allegedly weaponized NGOs, unions, individuals, assistants and members of the European Parliament in an effort to subdue our processes. Now it has to be said that since then she, she's come up with much more wide-ranging proposals. She said the Parliament needs to clean up its act and, and she's promised to come up with a reform package early in January to deal with that and, and deal with many of these opaque uh, systems and problems. There are many things we have done already, but many things we still have to do. There are uh, too many, uh, let's say, ways that decisions are taken that uh, could be done better. Uh, too many informal groupings uh, that are potentially more amenable to influence. Too many organizations whose uh, funding for, transpar for transparency of funding is not clear. We will clamp down on everything and we will make sure that... I cannot say this will never happen again, this is criminal corruption, but I will make sure that everything is in place to make sure the parliament is not for sale. Thank you. Where do things stand then at the moment with this investigation? So the, the police investigation is ongoing and and we, we wait to hear if there are going to be more revelations, if there are going to be more arrests and, and more people impl implicated. Um, we know that they've searched many more properties than, than arrests have been made and that they want to comb through a, a lot of data. And that's why for, in, for investigators, it was so important to seize phones, to seal off offices and to take the computer equipment. So I think we, we'll hear a lot more about, uh, about what's been really happening at the European Parliament in the weeks and months to come. And where's Eva Kylie, the now former vice president, where's she gone? So Ava Kaili is currently in a Brussels jail and she's still waiting to find out whether she'll be released on bail but is due to find out at the end of this week on the 22nd of December. And we should say that um, she has said through her lawyer that she's innocent, um, she rejects the charges against her and we haven't heard yet from the other three suspects who were in custody which also, who also include a former Italian MEP. Though she's lost her role as a parliamentary vice president, the Greek socialist Kylie remains a member of parliament. She's one of six people arrested by Belgian police as part of an anti-corruption investigation. Two of them have been released from custody after questioning. Coming up, will this scandal make the EU parliament change the way it polices itself? Jennifer, Thinking more broadly about foreign interference in EU institutions, is there any precedence for this? Have, have we ever seen any cases like this one before? For me, this is completely unprecedented. But I think we've certainly seen influence campaigns from foreign governments uh, on a smaller scale. 
and on on a broader sense in terms of interference uh, with the EU. I mean, lots of European Parliament insiders would talk to the recent cyber attack uh, launched by Russia on the European Parliament after it adopted uh, a, a resolution condemning Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. So there's increasing awareness about governments, hostile governments, aggressive governments trying to undermine the parliament. I think what has happened here is is completely un- unprecedented in terms of the, the scale of the apparent corruption. How shocked have people been about this? I mean, in the media and in the parliament? I think that there is a lot of shock about it among people who work in the parliament. And I've had people who've said to me, I just didn't think anything like this could ever happen. It really does seem like a, a crime novel. And and in the Belgian media as well, it's it's been a huge story here, as you'd expect. And also people taking some pride in the fact that um, you know, it was the Belgian authorities that uncovered this big scandal, um, which had apparently gone completely undetected inside the European Parliament. And here in the UK, we've also got a situation where... British MPs are having to defend their meetings or trips with Qatari officials um, in the past few months in the lead up to the World Cup. Do you think that as a result of this, journalists and those in Parliament are going to be scrutinising more closely the type of gifts that MPs and, and parliamentarians are accepting from other countries? I mean, I think this issue has always been been on the agenda, but it's going to attract even more scrutiny now. And I think MPs uh, in Westminster and MEPs in Brussels will be scrutinising themselves more and their colleagues more and, and, and asking you know, who, is, who is funding this trip that, um, that uh, so-and-so has just been on. And I think, I think the institutions themselves are going to have to adopt tighter rules in order to not lay themselves open to the charges of corruption or on, on, a, on a weaker end of, of undue influence or of just being of just being swayed in one direction because you've you've been on a on a nice trip and stayed in a five star hotel and been been shown all the sights by a, a friendly government and people all remember back in 2009, the huge backlash to the MPs' expenses scandal. As more and more revelations came out about that, of MPs who had worked within this system and taken as much as they could get, basically, a lot of MPs lost their jobs. Some of them went to jail. Do you think that for the EU Parliament, this could be a similar watershed moment? I think it could be a watershed moment in terms of how the parliament polices itself, but we'll have to see. But I I think this scandal undoubtedly is doing and will do huge damage to the reputation of the parliament and to the EU more broadly, because people don't always distinguish from one institution to the other. So I think it plays into the hands of of anti-EU politicians, but but it also causes you know causes doubts among people who who would be more inclined to support the EU. So I think there'll be huge pressure for reform. They undoubtedly will have to do something, but we'll have to see in in the new year what it is that the Parliament proposes, and also whether they vote through the really uh, wide ranging reforms that so many transparency campaigners think are needed. How quickly could any of that happen? 
Some things can happen very quickly. I mean, they can. The parliament could take decisions on, for example, banning Qatar or other governments from entering the parliament. I think that could be done relatively quickly. They've already um, decided to to block certain NGOs from coming to the parliament. Uh, other reforms will take longer, and you'll require the support of a majority of MEPs for them to pass. But uh, I think. Given the, the just the enormity of this scandal, I think it would be very hard for MEPs to try and uh, block any moves for greater accountability and transparency. But that's my very optimistic view. So we will see what actually happens in a few weeks and months once this, once the the shock waves of this are, are no longer reverberating quite as as you know intensely as they are now. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on it closely. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Thank you very much. That was Jennifer Rankin. She'll be following this story and everything else happening in Brussels at theguardian.com. Now, you might know that The Guardian and Observer are running a charity appeal for two organisations, Citizens Advice and Locality. There are 14.5 million people in the UK living in poverty at the moment and what these charities do is absolutely vital in order to help get those people the support they need. Some of you have donated already and thank you so much. If you can spare any amount at all please go to theguardian.com forward slash charity appeal 2022. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff and sound designed by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.